Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How do I use my difference to make a difference? Well, you know, I think one of the most inspiring parts of my day or week are when I hear from students, especially at Georgetown University where I teach, or even people that I might touch in my workshops or a keynote, and they say, you know, for example, you're the first Black professor I've had, and I'm a senior. Ah, yes. Georgetown, right? And as someone who went to a HBCU, Spelman College, every time I hear that, it's a little bit shocking for me because that was not my experience, and my heart breaks just a little bit for them because I'm like, man, you know, I really wish you would see more people that look like you in positions of leadership, right? Um, but knowing that I can be that person for at least one person, it, it helps me to push forward in this work. We know this work is not easy. It's hard being a DEI researcher, practitioner, being in this space, having these tough conversations, it's draining at times. But when one person can tell me that, that I had an impact on them in that particular way, or they never thought that they would see a, a black professor at their business school, for example, that is how I'm using my difference to make a difference. How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Dr. Ella F. Washington, the author of The Necessary Journey. Today's conversation centers around what making progress on equity and inclusion looks like. This is the question that Dr. Washington is looking to answer. She's very interested in understanding how we can create this workplace utopia, and she shares her interesting journey. We dive into what a multi-hyphenate is, how she developed her career as one, and the meaning of representation and why that is something that we should never take for granted. The road to inclusion is filled with bumps and inevitable obstacles. And it's very important for us to be able to find the right guides, the right compasses. And that's why I like bringing all these guests on who have different perspectives on diversity, equity, inclusion. I hope that you will check out Dr. Washington's book. It's in the show notes and you'll support her in any way you can, but also check out her platforms. She has a podcast, she's a professor, she's a researcher, and she has endless amount of best practices on the topic of equity, inclusion, and diversity. So enjoy the episode and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Welcome everyone to another episode of As Told by Nomads and today's guest is Dr. Ella F. Washington. Now, Dr. Ella Washington is an organizational psychologist and DEI expert, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion, with a wealth of experience through her involvement as the founder and CEO of Elevate Solutions, a professor of practice of Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business, and the co-host of Gallup Center of Black Voice Cultural Competence Podcast. 
Within all these roles, Dr. Washington continues to deepen her research pipeline and thought leadership as a Gallup senior scientist studying inclusive leadership, strengths, and other DEI workplace topics. We're going to be discussing her new book and what she feels is missing in the diversity, equity, inclusion workplace, how we can deepen our, our leadership and make sure that we talk about the under-discussed in today's workplace, which we'll soon reveal. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, pleasure is mine. I, you know, quite an accomplished career. So first thing I wanted to do is, how did you know that you were going to be a multi-hyphenate? When did you know, rather, you were going to be a multi-hyphenate? And multi-hyphenate, what do you mean by multi-hyphenate? That is interesting. So, okay. So for, for people like what we do, you know, professor, speaker, consultant, all these things, multi-hyphenate means you do multiple things, right? Oh, you, you do, I love that. Yeah. I guess I'm using that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, you know, I'll be honest. I don't know that I ever set out to be a multi-hyphenate. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, because you got the hyphen, right? That's why it's multi. It's like, okay, we got to put this and this and this. I think that mind. that has evolved, right? So I was really clear that I'm, I've always been clear on my passions. So mm -hmm. I was passionate and still remain passionate about having impact in the workplace, right? And, and the reason why I became an organizational psychologist is because I do very much acknowledge that we spend so much of our lives at work, right? Yes. And, and I've seen, you know, throughout my life, looking at my family, looking at friends and even my own career, you know, many times work is not enjoyable for people. Yeah. You know, most people don't like their jobs, like straight up. And so they're just trying to get through the week. That's why we see all these memes online about like just making it to the weekend. And although that is the status quo, I truly believe that, you know, we should be in workplaces where we can thrive. Every day may not be fun and games, right? Especially if you have a more serious job, but the workplace should not be a place that continuously drains you, right? You should get energy from the work that you do um, in some way, and certainly from the community of people that you work with. And so that's where diversity, equity, and inclusion comes in. Now, where all this multi-hyphenate thing comes, well, it's like, oh, I can teach and I can consult and, oh, maybe I'll write a book. And so then I get author. And so um, I love the fact that all of my work is interconnected in some way. So for me, it doesn't feel like the, the massive amount of work that it actually is. So I have to often check myself because it's all in the same vein of going towards that purpose, you know, that purpose of my work. Um, but yeah, it, it might be time to take some hyphens out. <laughs> You know, but that that's fair. But you know, one of the things I, you know, I'm I'm from Nigeria, uh, and I, you know, I grew up in, in multiple parts of the world. And when I was trying to figure out the career, it was the same sort of thing. I I I was chuckling when you said that. I I always say we go to school or some sort of work institution for most of our lives. So I'd love to make an impact in those fields. And it came down to you know speaking, podcasting, consulting, and the connecting theme there was really connecting effectively across cultures. And so for me. It didn't feel like I was adding on titles, but by the end of it, that, that became the case because I wanted to attack the education institution as well as the workplace institution. And, and I think sometimes when we do this work, especially when we're, we're talking to other people, a, a lot of people might think it's a trend, you know, depending on, on what's happening. But I don't know that a lot of people look at the lens of actually learning how to humanize people in where they spend most of their time. In. And it sounds like that's what you're doing as well. Yeah, you know, one of the, the themes of my work is elevating humanity in the workplace. Yes. Um, I truly believe that we need more human moments, more community connection moments, 
in the workplace, again, because we're there for so much of our lives. So we have to humanize it, no matter if you are working with technology all the whole day or what have you, there has to be that human element. Most of the conversations that we're having uh, around DEI in the workplace, there is a point that we are just really dialing up our humanity. We're sharing our perspectives, our lived experiences. We're sharing things that offend us or have hurt us in some way. We're showing that human side. We're, we're showing mm -hmm. that, you know, it, we bleed, we hurt, you know, we feel. And for a long time, um, particularly, you know, previous generations, but I would say for many people pre-pandemic uh, in 2020, there was this notion that we would leave ourselves, our true identities, our true selves outside of the workplace. So whenever it's time to go to work, we go into work. And now we have shut off all of those outside factors. But yes. I think that's the one thing that we have truly learned from the pandemic that first of all that was a farce anyways because we were never checking our identities at the door like we were no. pretending but we weren't doing that no, nobody was no. uh we were maybe suppressing them not speaking on them pretending as if they weren't there but you know we were still checking our news news updates on our cell phones and we were still having those feelings about things that were happening outside in the world or even you know if we had a terrible morning on the way to work that has an impact on the rest of our day like we don't check those things just because it's time for work and in the pandemic i think we were faced with that harsh reality that like there is no turning off work and turning on life and turning off life and turning on work 100%, it is yeah. integrated and when you're in the the space of your own home and you're still having to show up as your professional self that becomes so much more clear well i mean that's what you were discussing in your book the necessary journey making real progress on equity and inclusion you say many organizations desire this vision and know that it's a journey to get there but still don't know what is required to make that journey and and so why do you feel like all these organizations are missing the mark you know i think that there is this big notion of what dei is uh, you know, a lot of people, if they're not involved in this work, um, you know, hands on, they think of DEI as the big conversations about topics like race or gender or sexual orientation. They think right. of DEI as those moments, you know, that may make headlines. And they don't think about DEI as those things and those everyday moments. Like what is the, the core purpose of this work. And as I said, it's to elevate humanity in the workplace, right? Yes, yeah. And so if we're doing that, it's not just those big moments, it's the everyday experience of yourself and your team members. And so in 2020, I kept getting this question like over and over again. And most times CEOs or CHROs that I was talking to, they pull me aside and say, <laughs> okay, so all of that that you said was great, but can you really tell us like, where are we on the journey? And the second question I would always ask is, and how do we compare to other people, right? And so once I got that question, five, 10, 15 plus times in the course of just a few short months, I realized that we have been saying this rhetoric of DEI is a journey for years, but so many people, including seasoned DEI practitioners, didn't have the words or even um, foundational understanding of what that journey looks like, right? So then being the researcher that I am, I said, okay, well, let me go find the best framework out there. And of course, there are many consulting frameworks on the maturity model for DEI, right? But I think it's beyond just a maturity model. What wasn't there was a true understanding of what other elements of the journey entail. And so I went on uh, this pathway in writing The Necessary Journey 
to really demystify what this DEI journey is all about and try to make it plain for people so that it's not just the, the chief human resource officer or the chief diversity officer that can understand what this journey is all about because we want everybody to participate. People have to understand what DEI is all about yeah. beyond those big moments. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on just people needing to understand what DEI is beyond big moments. Because if you think about the big moments before the pandemic, the unfortunate murder of George Floyd, um, a lot of what's been happening recently leading to, to the elections, but it seems like it's always reactive. And a, a lot of you know people that have been marginalized will say, well, we've always been here. Why is it now that you're paying attention? And how do we feel like we can trust you enough that when this thing becomes less trendy, you're still going to put focus on this. And, 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 and that's really the, the, the yeah. rubber, right? How does it become? Not only have we always been here, but these moments are not new, right? No, no. So even in the world of DEI, you know, I have to remind people that DEI didn't start in 2020 by far. You know, <laughs> the, the work of uh, diversity management from a corporate perspective is 40 years old. Right. And the work of research in that space is 40 plus years old. Right. And so a lot of people, they did, they knew that DI existed, but they thought like it was something new about what was happening in 2020. And it was like, no, same. People ask me often, what, how is the advice different today than it was a year ago or six months ago, you know, during 2020? I was like, it's literally the same. Y'all are just listening now. Right. So, like, the core tenets of the things that we share as DEI researchers and practitioners has not changed. It evolves, right, as humanity evolves. But the core tenets are the same, which is people were listening a bit differently. Yeah. I, I mean, let's keep the focus on the employee here. You know, one of the things that I've enjoyed saying or reading in, in the pitch, uh, you know, when your publicist uh, sent an email, it was this idea of quiet firing. You know, quiet quitting is, as, as you say, all over the news, but you say the real story is quiet firing. And th these are the employer, employer who doesn't, you know, they don't give raises, they don't have promotion opportunities, and they slight team members. Mm -hmm. So what exactly is quiet firing? I think it's exactly what you just said. You know, quiet firing is the other side of the coin where an employee may not be performing up to standard. And instead of engaging in a, a, a candid feedback conversation or clear indication of what the consequences are of poor performance. Instead, a lot of managers just tend to lean away from that employee in whatever way. So maybe it's they, they just happen not to get invited to the meeting or they're not considered for those next opportunities. And maybe because they're assumed they don't want them or they are not performing at a level where the manager is trusting of them. But regardless of what the impetus is, the outcome is certainly that there has been a breakdown in the relationship um, and that social contract that both managers and uh, team members have. Yeah. And by the time quiet firing happens, you know, there's been a breakdown both ways, most likely, right? The employee may not be getting what they want or need, uh, more importantly, from their workplace relationship. And there, the manager also is not getting what they need, which is usually like, you know, a quality output. And so instead of having that tough conversation, many managers are ill-equipped and uncomfortable with giving real feedback, right? Or even in talking about kind of what needs to happen to close that gap and what happens if that gap is not closed. Like there's nothing wrong with consequences. I think poor performance should have consequences, but the consequence should not be 
you're left off of a meeting, you know, or you are just never considered for an opportunity. The yeah. consequence should be clearly uh, detailed to you that like, hey, you're not eligible for this opportunity or we don't trust you with clients until you can demonstrate this. But again, those are tough conversations. And they don't feel good to have. And so people um, will generally lean away from that, that those candid moments and instead do those other things that aren't quite wrong, but they certainly are not in the spirit of respect and transparency. Well, you know, it's something I find when I'm working with companies is, especially with, with people of color and, and women in particular, when it comes to feedback, it's not quality feedback, even if it's a praise, right? Good job. Or I wish you did that better. But there's nothing of substance there that really allows the person to know what they did well or what they could improve on. And then whenever it comes time to promote and all these things, it, it's like, well, you never did this. And you constantly move with the goalpost essentially. And Absolutely. I hear, yeah, I hear some of my stories like that. Well, first of all, most of us are not great at giving feedback, like period. Like it's just not a thing that comes naturally. We have to work on it. We all do. No matter how long you have been in the workforce, you have to work and, and really train and exercise that muscle of giving good, um, actionable feedback. Yes. Um, most times, to your point that we give feedback, someone says, oh, that was a great job. And we're like, thank you so much. But we never think about like, wait, what was so great? Like, tell yeah. me what I did that <laughs> like really stood out to you. And it's not a way of like getting extra, you know, pats on your back, but you want to know what are the behaviors that I did really well that you noticed and that you thought had an impact. Well, the reverse is true when we give feedback that is constructive. You know, I thought that that presentation could have gone better. You seemed ill-prepared. Okay, well, what about me seemed ill-prepared or what would have looked like better preparation? And so that's in general, right? But then you layer on these identities, right? And the fact that most people are not comfortable giving feedback and they're certainly not comfortable giving feedback from people who, that are different than themselves. And so men might have a challenge giving feedback to women, for example, or vice versa. Uh, you know, people that are white in leadership positions often have a hard time giving candid feedback to people of color, not because they don't like them, not because, you know, they think they're not good performers, but they just are uncomfortable already with feedback and they become more uncomfortable in those situations. And what happens is the person that is supposed to be on the receiving end of the feedback, the team member is the one who suffers because yeah. then you see over the course of time, and there was a, a New York Times article about this last year, um, specifically looking at women and the lack of performance feedback that they have gotten and how it's limited their opportunities. And over the course of the same 10 year period, a man versus a woman, the man gets more candid feedback. He has those development opportunities to grow, right? And so you see his career uh, continue to go up versus the woman. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Woman who doesn't get that same candid feedback does, you know, has a, a profile that is not as successful as him, even though they came in at the same level. And so it's not just a matter of that one time, it's the continuous lack of candid feedback from multiple people. And it's not just one person that that we see this. It's it's cultural, right? And so um it's it's not a nice to have, it's mandatory and it really is essential to the success and development of people from marginalized identities. And that's a huge gap. Well, no, well said, Dr. Washington. And I think it's I think it's really important for people that are trying to make this a cultural thing, diversity, equity, inclusion, to understand that having difficult conversations is a key part of that. And even being able to acknowledge that you are uncomfortable is also important because a lot of people don't like to say it by themselves because they, you know, they're going to deal with the shame and and, and that comes from that. But that's also part of the journey, right? Your book is all about the journey. But the journey is being able to work through all those things and acknowledge what you need to acknowledge without, you know, you know, losing interest in the fight or hope in the fight. Yeah. And you know, the best conversations I've had, uh, whether it was me on the receiving end or the giving end, you know, they've started off with, hey, this is a little uncomfortable for me, but <laughs> I, I got to say the thing. Right. And then we just enter into dialogue and it, it makes both people, I think, a little more receptive. I think that yeah. that's one of the things that leaders, and I know, you know, you talk a lot about inclusive leadership and what it looks like every day. You know, leaders think they have to have all the right answers because they're the leader. They oh are put in these positions of leadership, probably because they've done a good job. Um, they've performed well. And usually as individual contributors, they really performed well, right? Yeah. But they get these leadership positions and they think that, oh, okay, I have to have all the right answers all the time. You don't, no one does, right? And so- Part of this is being humble enough um, to admit that you don't have all the answers, but also that's a place of showing a bit of humanity and vulnerability to your team members. Um, yeah. and that's what they want to see. That that makes them feel more included than most of the things that you could do. Yeah, I mean, part of being an inclusive leader really has to do with you acknowledging the fact that you're not going to have all the answers because there's just there are many you don't know all the identities, <laughs> right. so you, you have know, to invite that. that. Yeah. I gave a, a talk on microaggressions earlier today. And, and one of the questions I got um, was, well, you know, how do you make this easier? And how do you make this like less uncomfortable? And I'm like, the reality is, is that anytime that you're addressing a microaggression, you may get a little uncomfortable. Like if it doesn't, it's probably not going to be a fun conversation. No. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't engage in it. It doesn't mean it won't get easier, but it may not get comfortable where you just, oh, I can't wait to tell somebody, you know, they said something sexist. Like no one, no one wakes up feeling like that. <laughs> it's no, not, no. not a place of comfort. It's true though. It's true. And if we don't push past that, we're not going to grow uh, truly. Uh, so I, I appreciate you commitment to that you another way that you you promote growth though is is in the way you wrote the book right you, you say you wrote the book as a series of narratives and you have a story-driven approach essentially and that's because you believe it's a very compelling tool uh and perhaps the most powerful one i'm very curious as to the process of writing a book and why you chose these stories to tell the story of a journey here 
Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of information out there, as I said, you know, frameworks and metrics and checklists, and those things are helpful to be tactical about DEI. So I want to be clear, those are helpful. But what's often missing, and we keep coming back to this theme, is the, the humanity part of it, right? And so it's easy to look at the end of year DEI report of an organization and say, okay, they've done all these things, but you learn so much more when you learn what struggles they had to get to that report, uh, what resistance they faced within the organization, what were the wins that actually had an impact on someone's life, right? You know, seeing that they have a higher increase in their demographic numbers is great, but hearing the story of like what it felt like for a team member to finally feel seen mm. and valued is so much more powerful. And so going back to my purpose in writing this book around demystifying what this DEI thing is about, I wanted leaders and team members alike to be able to see themselves in some part of the journey, you know, and if you could see yourself in something, then you're much more likely to connect with it and think, oh, it's possible for me too. So maybe it's for a manager that is unsure, again, what this DEI thing is all about or how to do it on a daily basis. Maybe they read the, the chapter on Slack and how they've had a grassroots approach to DNI and how managers have been central to that and the, and the things that they've done on a daily basis to increase those feelings of belonging and inclusion, for example. So I want everyone to see themselves in some part of this story. Um, and that was, you know, my, my approach. Now, I, I, you know, one of the great things about belonging is if you can find yourself in any story, there's, there's a path to healing. Uh, and a lot of times, many of us are taken out of the stories, the stories of the workforce. You, you were bringing up microaggression earlier. If people go into a workplace where they know that being themselves is going to be punished, you know, you learn how to what assimilate or code switch or whatever it is. And code switching can be good or bad. But when you're code switching or for survival, you know, the story is you're losing yourself to fit into something else. And I remember doing a session on microaggressions and I was telling my story of that. And someone said, that's like death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, I just like, couldn't think of a more perfect way to say that. And I imagine how many people that go to the workplace feeling like they're slowly dying by a lot of paper cuts because they can't celebrate the holiday. They're, they're, the idea of them being a parent is not celebrated. They can't, the nationality on visa situation is not worked on. They can't take time off when they want to. And they only have to celebrate maybe a holiday that everybody else in the majority celebrates. And so I do think it's important for stories to show that because sometimes in the framework way that that, that many of us use, we miss on we miss out on that humanization process. Yeah, and it's the same reason we we use both qualitative and quantitative data points, right? So, yeah. you know, a successful DEI strategy is going to have both quantitative yeah. survey results or metrics um, in terms of where your organization is numbers-wise, but you also want to talk to people. You also got to get those focus groups. You got to get that those qualitative answers on the survey to get a layer deeper, and it's the same thing that I thought of in this book. I said, let me go a layer deeper than, than just at the surface level. Let's get beneath the surface with these companies. And some of them, they're quite well known, right? Like PwC is a well-known company, yes. a, a company that has been um, lauded for many years on their DEI journey, but you know what? They're not perfect either. 
And I was so grateful that the two leaders, the CEO, Tim Ryan, and their chief of uh, people, Shannon Schuyler, were so honest about like, yeah, we've done this really well, but we were truly stuck in the tactical stage. We thought it was about programs, for example, and we were missing the mark on X and Y and Z. And so even with companies that seem like they have it all figured out, I think peeling back that layer, and I'm so grateful for all the companies that allowed me to do that, showing that no one actually has it all together, we're all on the journey, was another really important thing to me because I think you can lead people to not be so intimidated as well. Like we are often intimidated by the perspective that we might fail um, mm -hmm. and we might not you know, hit the mark the first time. And in these stories, what you see is that many companies and many leaders do not hit the mark the first time. The that first doesn't time. mean they fail in the long run if they keep at it, right? And so that was the other approach that I had. I wanted these stories to be about hope and what's possible and not just getting caught up in a moment in time, but looking at it from truly a, a longer term journey perspective. Yeah, no, I, that, that's well said. And I, and I, re I really, really am hoping that that becomes a cultural movement. Uh, speaking of a cultural movement and a culture shift, you highlighted on your website that 95% of best-selling authors are white. Oh, yes. So how can we get you on this list? What is what is someone <laughs> listening? <laughs> what could someone listening here do to engage in, in spreading the message as well as your your hard work? Yeah, you know, I was shocked when I even saw you were shocked. I was shocked. Ninety five percent. I mean, I would assume that you know people of color are just not writing books, which we all know was not true, right? And so when I saw that, I was like, man, what's happening? What is the systematic uh, challenge here? What are the systemic inequities that we are not aware of? And you know, as I shared with you. I've learned so much being a first time author. I've, you know, this has been my career. I've been doing this for more than a decade as a DI professional. And I've learned so much just about what the publication process is. So if you're listening or watching uh, us today, the first thing you can do is go buy my book. You can get my book from any major retailer. It's called The Necessary Journey, Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion. But once you buy the book and hopefully you get it and it touches you in some way, take that five minutes to go submit a review. Like it on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Give it five stars. Um, write a review because reviews help the book to become elevated even on those websites. Um, and of course, spread the word, right? That's, that is how you get on those lists. In addition though, uh, you know, the book came out yesterday, but what I would say for any other new authors that you may come across, pre-order their book. And this is why, you know, retailers like a Target or Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, they decide how much they will have in stock of that book on release day based on the amount of interest is shown through pre-orders. So if you were like me, who never pre-ordered anything before, I understood this is how the process worked. You know, a lot of people will say, people who love me dearly will say, oh yeah, I was just gonna plan to get it when it came out, which is totally fine usually, but specifically for new authors, it matters a lot because it shows the companies that there's interest in this book, they'll support it more, they'll advertise it more. Even my publishing company, Harvard, is paying more attention, you know, when you get those pre-orders. And so those are things I would say, pre-order a book, uh, for my book, it's out now. So go buy it and go put those reviews out in the world so that it gets elevated um, on these websites and for more people to learn about. That's amazing. No, I, and it's so true. It's, uh, you know, especially in this world, uh, the digital world we live in, the, the 
algorithms uh, sometimes, you know, rule the day and, and the interest is determined by how many people review, how many people buy, how many people pre-order. And so, yes, everything Dr. Washington said is important. And so it's also important to keep that same consistency across the path when you're fighting anything systemic, whether it's with authors or workplaces or even education, how do you consistently show up and support people that are doing the work? And then it becomes, you know, uh, something that becomes um, a momentum. Well, you have to first understand what the game, right? You got to understand the rules of the game in order to play. And I think what you've just talked about from an author perspective, I didn't even know the rules of the game. Now that I do, I'm telling everybody I know, like, hey, you got to <laughs> pre-order someone's book. That actually helps them a lot. Um, and I think we see the same things in our workplaces. Like there are these unwritten rules mm. and unwritten things that we don't know. And until we understand the rules of the game, we can't play and we certainly can't successfully play. Likewise, from an organizational standpoint, they got to be honest about what their rules of the game are. And so I often challenge organizational leaders to say, hey, okay, how are decisions made in this company? Let's talk about how decisions are made formally. And let's talk about informally. How are promotion decisions made? Formally on paper, what does your HR policy say? But then let's talk about what really happens. What is the actual informal process? Because th both of those things are important. And a lot of that informal um, way of doing things, our informal culture has huge implications. And people don't know how to navigate it if they never know the rules of the game. Yes, no. And, that, and that's what you've done a good job of, right? knowing the rules of the game. And also, I think even being in the game, you know, part of it is this idea of, you know, voting. I know I was on your LinkedIn earlier. You're encouraging people to vote. That's one of the, yeah, right? It's voting intentionally. There is a sentiment out there that my vote doesn't matter mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes. But I, I do think all these things correlate, though. It, the more we engage in a process to enter the game, change the game, the better that we, we can actually make an impact. And even if it doesn't feel like it's it's happening initially, it's the consistency of it, understanding the journey of what is going to happen. And you call it the necessary journey. It, it's critical for us to be engaged in these processes. And I'll be honest, they're not all fair. And sometimes it can feel like maybe your votes, for example, doesn't count. I mean, I'm in Washington, D.C., and um, D.C. has not been Republican for as long as anyone rem can remember as far as how people vote, right? But that doesn't mean um, that if you identify, for example, as a Democrat, that you shouldn't vote. You should just take it, you know, for granted if that is what you want to see. And if you don't want to see that, you know, you shouldn't also take it for granted that your vote doesn't count. Um, you, you have to be engaged in processes of change, right? You can't expect change if you're not willing to engage in them. And by the way, sometimes it's going to take multiple avenues. Yes. So yes, voting yeah. may be frustrating for you and maybe you do it and feel like you haven't done enough. Great, let's do something else. Do something voting and what else can you do to engage in these processes of change? If you really wanna see change, it's not gonna be easy. That's why it's called change. No one likes change, you know? And so if we want to see change in any of these spaces, workplaces, politics, in our broader society, we gotta be willing to do that hard work. And um, it, it's, it's really tough for folks to, to really understand that message. Nope, nope. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, currently, I'm currently reading a lot of the notes that I have here because uh, you are a living embodiment of everything that you say. So I, I wanna say this again, the links will be in the show notes for, uh, for you know, Dr. Ella, F. Washington's book, and please make sure you support and understand the support is 
a, a, a journey theme. And just like you follow your favorite uh, influencer or celebrity or anyone, it's this idea of constantly checking in and checking up and finding ways to support, whether it's ratings for a TV show, it's the same thing that happens for books, showing up for events and sharing clips that you find, right? And so that's what we're going to do for, for, for Dr. Watson. The book is called The Necessary Journey, Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion. I have one final question for you, and that, that's my mission statement reframed as a question. And my mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So- Dr. Washington, how do you use your difference to make a difference? How do I use my difference to make a difference? Well, you know, I think one of the most inspiring parts of my day or week are when I hear from students, especially at Georgetown University where I teach, or even people that I might touch in my workshops or a keynote, and they say, you know, for example, you're the first Black professor I've had, and I'm a ah, senior. Yes. Georgetown, right? And as someone who went to a HBCU, Spelman College, every time I hear that, it's a little bit shocking for me because that was not my experience. And my heart breaks just a little bit for them because I'm like, man, you know, I really wish you would see more people that look like you in positions of leadership, right? Um, but knowing that I can be that person for at least one person, it, it helps me to push forward in this work. We know this work is not easy. It's hard being a DEI researcher, practitioner, being in this space, having these tough conversations, it's draining at times. But when one person can tell me that, that I had an impact on them in that particular way, or they never thought that they would see a, a black professor at their business school, for example, that is how I'm using my difference to make a difference. Well, well said, Dr. Alev Washington, uh, a beacon of representation, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a ruler in the fight against uh, suppression. And I'm, I'm really excited. Congratulations on your book. This has been a Thank pleasure. You. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Pleasure is mine. Kings, queens of royalty. Till next time, use a difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.